Let's once more go to our God in prayer. O oh, our Father in heaven, your Son said that of men born of women, John the Baptist was the greatest. And yet he himself says that he was not fit to untie the Master's sandal. Feeling myself to be the chief of all sinners, who am I to handle your word? And so I ask, O oh God, that you would be pleased for the sake and merit of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to visit us with your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, for the renewing of minds and hearts. We pray for the resurrection of souls. We long for the day of Jesus Christ and his kingdom upon the new heavens and new earth. We ask, Father, be with us. Focus us on the gospel of your beloved Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to John, the Gospel of John, in the first chapter. The verse which I want to uh, preach from today is John ch chapter 1 verse 29 but to keep it in context so that we have all of the story fresh in our minds I'd like to begin reading at verse 19 this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him who are you and he confessed and did not deny but confessed I am not the Christ they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now the context for this verse, verse 29, comes in the context of John the Baptist's ministry. And more importantly, a delegation that is sent by the Pharisees to John's. They want to investigate, they want to identify who John is. They're Levites and they're priests. These are religious, learned men. They know their Bible. They know the Torah. They know the Old Covenant very, very well. It is their job to know these things. And they have, in large part, both have dedicated their lives to knowing the Scripture, to knowing the Word of God, and in a sense, they have been, uh, by virtue of their genealogy, their family, have been told to do this. This is the task which they were assigned by birth. They were Levites. They were priests. 
And they're sent with one, one task, one simple task. Who is John the Baptist? Now when they get to John the Baptist, he's baptizing, and they ask him the question. And they're very, very to the point, very direct. Uh, I like that about, about people. I like it when they're direct. And I like that about them. They're, they get right to the point. Who are you? And John gives an answer. He gives a negative answer. He tells them who he's not. And he gives them a positive answer. He tells them who he is. He tells them that he is not Elijah, that he is not the prophet, and that he is most certainly not the Christ. But then John switches from who he is and directs their attention to who they should be really focused on. You see, they're asking, in John's mind, they're asking the wrong question. Who am I is insignificant. I'm just one who points to someone greater. And the question you should be asking, John is saying, is not so much who is John the Baptist, but who is the Christ. John moves his focus away from himself and on to the real person that they should be interested in. See, John answers and he says, I'm just a voice. I'm a voice in the wilderness. I'm the prophesied voice of one who says, make straight the way of the Lord. He is baptizing with water, John says. But there is one in their midst, there's one in their group who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John says, I am, un I am unworthy to untie his shoe. Now, if you were sent by a delegation to find out who this John character was, and you got that as an answer, a good worker would not just go, okay, well, we know that who he's not, and we know he's a pro prophetic voice, let's turn around and go back. Because the next question that should have been on their mind is, who is this guy? Okay, that's great, we know who John is, but John says that there's someone greater there. But they're not in the least bit interested in this Christ. They're content, having heard a piece of information, to go their way. And so we read that in the next day, it's presumed that this delegation has been is satisfied with the information which they've received, that John is not the Christ, that he's not Elijah, that he's not the prophet, that he's just a guy who's getting ready for the Messiah. Getting His ministry is getting those ready for the Messiah. And so the next day, Jesus returning after his baptism, after his temptation in the wilderness, comes to John. And then John identifies who this one is who will baptize in the Holy Spirit and whose sandal he is unworthy to untie. He declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now Jesus has many responsibilities. He has many, we could say, offices. He is the king, he is the prophet, and he is the priest. He is the mediator between God and man. But in John's mind, the thing that is most needed to know about Jesus, 
the thing that so naturally rolls off this, vo this voice that's crying out in the wilderness is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He announces His greatest service, the all-sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And this, Christian and non-believer alike, is my dearest desire, my greatest desire for us this morning, is to behold up to you this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christian, behold the Lamb of God, Jesus the Christ, who takes away the sin of the world. You will never move past the cross of Jesus Christ. You will never, have, you will never exhaust your need for Jesus the Christ as your Lamb of God. You have been redeemed from sin and you have died to sin. But yet, it's still indwelling in you. You have a need to look, to behold Jesus who is the Lamb of God. Now for you who do not profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for you who have not made Him your Savior, behold Him as a Lamb. For you who have not been baptized, into his church, into his death, you need to look to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And so this is the most important business. This is our business in this hour. This is my greatest desire for you to behold Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So look to Jesus for the removal of your sin. Look to Jesus for the removal of your sin because he alone is the sin-bearing sacrifice. Now, John says that he is the Lamb of God. And this seems pretty odd for us in our 21st century minds, and especially in America. Uh, I don't think any of us really own livestock. We might have a dog or something. Uh, but I don't think any of us have livestock not that I'm aware of, Lisa, not, and if we do, it might be a cow or a goat or something, surely not a lamb. But for the Jewish people of this time, for the Old Testament people of God, by identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God, John is doing something that these Levites and these priests would have been very familiar with. While it might seem odd to us, they who were very versed in the law of God knew exactly what John, had they stuck around long enough to hear him, was getting at. Because the law required sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. The law told us all, told us all of the things which God required of his creatures. What they owed to God and what they owed to one another according to the law. But when, when someone was to break the law, when somebody would sin, God prescribed sacrifice. You remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve committed the original sin. And they threw all of humanity into the current state that it is now, where sin is reigning through death. 
What was God's first act? Well, he sacrificed, an, he killed an animal, he sacrificed it, made clothes out of it, and he covered their nakedness, which was to be equated with their shame. God was saying to them with a word picture that sin, that guilt, must be covered. And this idea progresses, and God gives through Moses the ceremonial sacrificial system. And it prescribed that of all the animals that were to be sacrificed, a lamb was to be preferred. The sacrifice would happen daily, morning and evening, and also yearly during the Passover. And through this, they were being taught, as the bodies started to pile up, that sin brings misery, that death reigns in sin. The Levites, the priests, the Pharisees, they would have clearly understood what John was saying when he said, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He was saying, Jesus is that sacrifice for sin. Now the law was very particular about what kind of animal you had to sacrifice. It couldn't be any old lamb. It couldn't be a dirty one. It couldn't be one with spots. It had to be an unblemished or a perfect one. We're watching this show on uh, Amazon Prime. We like these like uh, living history, history type shows. And uh, this is taking place in England, and they're pretending that they're living in the uh, 19th century, so the late 1800s, and they're, they're playing this part as a Victorian farmer in England. Now, the English were all about sheep. That was kind of their, that was their animal. And it's very fascinating. Uh, it doesn't take very long uh, watching this show where I feel like I could pick out an unblemished lamb. Like, I, I think I know what a good sheep would look like. Because it's very obvious when you see an ugly one, or one that's not suitable for sacrifice, and one that is. Uh, they went to this show where they were, com were comparing them, and it was amazing just how different. Like, you both knew you were looking at sheep, but one was obviously much more handsome than the other one. The sheep which the Israelites were to sacrifice was to be an unblemished one. It was to be the best one. It would be the one which those Victorian British uh, farmers would have set aside to make sure that they uh, were there to mate with. It had real value, both in that it was a living creature and that it was a fine specimen of a lamb. Well, Jesus is also as the Lamb of God, a perfect Lamb. He is a perfect sacrifice for sin. We often say that Jesus lived a sinless life. And it's one of those things which we assert over and over again, and perhaps we don't even think about what that means, or how could we even prove that? If someone was to say, well, prove it. Prove that Jesus is a, a spotless Lamb. Prove that He lived a sinless life. Well, when we read the context of this passage, it says that the next day, Jesus came to John. And where was Jesus on the previous day? Well, the Bible makes it very clear 
that the connection in which uh, to this is that Jesus was enduring this 40 days of temptation with the evil one. Where can we prove that Jesus lived a sinless life? We can prove it from his temptation with Satan. Jesus is baptized. He runs off by, under the power of the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights. He becomes hungry. And the evil one comes to him. And he says, you see those rocks? You see those stones? Turn them into bread. Why should you be hungry? You are the Son of God. You can turn it into bread. And Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone. So the evil one takes him to the high mountain. He says, Cast yourself down. Th jump off. Free base. Right off, right off the side of this mountain. If you are the Son of God, angels will come and they will cause you to land softly. Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the third final temptation of the evil one. He takes him to the top of the world and he looks down and he sees all the kingdoms. You know, in our day and age, if you, you see the satellite pictures and you just see all of the artificial light and you, just how impressive it all is. It was no less impressive in Jesus' day as he looked down and he saw all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says, those are mine. And if you worship me, I'll give them to you. And Jesus says, of course, none should fall down and worship except God. And so Jesus has proven himself to be an unblemished lamb. He is God's lamb. We are to behold not only a lamb, we are to behold God's Lamb. We are to think upon it. To behold Him isn't merely to just look at Him passingly or to stare at something, but to look with understanding, to look with questions in mind. When He says that He is God's Lamb, He is making a claim, and that claim is, is that He belongs to and is from God Himself. He is an unblemished Lamb. And we should look to him for the removal of our sin because he is the lamb of sacrifice, perfect, undefiled. But in the second place, we should look to Jesus for the removal of your sin because he belongs to God. He is again, as we said, the lamb of God. The word of God contains many promises. There's many promises in the Word of God. And one of those promises is that God will send a sacrifice for sin. He will send His Lamb. Uh, and when we read like passages like uh, Genesis 22, 7-8, the Lamb which Abraham, the father of the faithful, hoped for, you, you remember this story where Isaac and Abraham go up to the mountain, Mount Moriah, and Abraham is to sacrifice Isaac. And Isaac's bound up. And he says, "Where, Father, where is the lamb of sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. 
This is what we call a foreshadow or an allusion to a future event. This is a promise which Abraham, the father of the faithful, was speaking, something that he knew by faith, that God would provide him a lamb. Christ in the Old Testament says that he is the substitute for the Old Testament sacrificial system. In Psalm 46 through 8, the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking in the Old Testament, says, burnt offering and sacrifice you had not you do not desire behold it is written of me i come and according to hebrews 10 the correct interpretation of that verse is that jesus is the substitute for that system that there are no other sacrifices and burnt offerings except the lord jesus christ and then God also promises the coming of His righteous one, the suffering servant. And I would like us to turn to Isaiah 53. This is one of those passages in the Old Testament where I, I just can't get enough of reading it. There's a ministry, they have a website, it's called I Saw Messiah, uh, and it's ethnic Jews who are now who are now Christians it's amazing how many times Isaiah 53 is used to convert the Jewish people but let us read who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried away. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he has taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of many people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear 
their iniquities. Fast forward. The Lord Jesus Christ has been crucified. He is dead. He's buried. He is risen. He has ascended into heaven. And in Acts chapter 8, Philip meets a eunuch. And the eunuch is reading this passage. And Philip says, do you know what you're reading? The eunuch says, how would I know? I need a teacher. And the, and the scripture says, Philip began preaching to him Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the promised lamb. Jesus isn't just some lone wolf guy, just some charismatic leader who just appears as almost out of a vacuum to, to these people. He's not in cahoots with John to be something that he's not. But Jesus is the promised Lamb of God. This Lamb which these, with these Jewish Levites and priests should have been looking for, should have been concerned with. And the one that John is pointing to. See, he is a Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, but he is God's Lamb. He is God's promised Lamb. He is the Lamb which all other lambs point to. As we said, the law prescribed sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And that there were, these were just shadows. They were just copies, whereas Christ was the substance. Every time a lamb was sacrificed, there was a message that was being proclaimed. You have sinned. Now something has to die. You must die, or this lamb must die, but something must die. There is what we call a vicarious nature about sacrifice. It's a substitute. That's the choice. I can die, or the sacrifice can die in my place. Sin takes life. We see now the, the heinousness, just how horrible it is. It causes death. It unravels the created order. Things that should have never known, creatures who should have never known death, now experience death on the daily because of sin. All these lambs which died under this system, Jesus point, pointed to Jesus. The author of the Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 22 to 23, says that Jesus entered a tabernacle not made by hands, that is heaven, by the blood of goats or bulls, but by his own blood, you see, Jesus is the lamb which all other lambs point to. And it is in Jesus where the sacrificial system ends. For his sacrifice was a once-for-all act with a continuing effect. Not only was Jesus the promised lamb, 
Not only was Jesus the lamb which all other lambs point to, but Jesus is God's accepted lamb. God accepts us, who are his children, who are, his, who are Christians, on Christ's behalf. We are redeemed, says Peter, not by imperishable things, or not by perishable things, but by imperishable things, namely the blood of Christ, being made believers of God through him who raised him through the dead. You know, the question might be on your mind. Okay, I'll bite. I've sinned. I deserve death. Jesus is that lamb. But how do I know God will accept me if I believe that? How does the death of a man who, who lived and died over 2,000 years ago have any bearing on my life today? How do I know that I will be accepted by God? You see, you just don't know, you might be saying, how sinful I really am. You don't know the things that I have done. You don't know the hateful thoughts that I may that I have. You might not know the lust that's in my heart. You might not know about my anger, my fits of rage. You don't know me very well at all, preacher boy. That's true, I don't. But I know this, that God's Word promises many things, and it declares this that the blood of Jesus Christ transcends time and space and reaches you today because it is imperishable. Its effect is lasting. He died for me, a sinner, and any sinner that claims the blood of Christ Jesus, that claims Jesus by faith as his lamb, that blood will reach him as well. So God accepts us on Christ's behalf, but God accepts Christ into heaven by his own merit. Again, the sinlessness of Christ is of the utmost importance. Why should God accept us by, Christ, by the blood of Christ? Because Christ alone is the one worthy to enter into heaven. Christ has entered heaven by his own blood. We've already talked about that briefly in Hebrews 9. But how do we know that he accepts the blood of Christ? How do we know that he accepts the Lamb? Well, let's turn to the end of the book. Revelation 5. guess perhaps a little inside joke. One of the good things about Revelation 5 is you have to read it to get to Revelation 20. Isn't that right, John? <laughs> uh, verse 11. 
Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, we have a picture of heaven here. Many angels gathered around, and they're all saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is God's heaven. God allows Christ, the lamb who was slain, to receive worship. You do not need to fear that God will not accept Christ and his sacrifice. One, because he has risen him from the dead. Two, he allows Christ to receive worship as the Lamb of God in heaven. So look to Jesus for the removal of your sin, because he alone is the sins-bearing sacrifice. And look to Jesus for the removal of your sin, because he belongs to God. But finally... Look to Jesus for the removal of your sin because he is a complete Savior. He's a complete Savior. He's the real deal. He's the complete package. Not to mix our allegories, our, our, uh, but I guess we would say that he is the goat. He is the greatest of all time. He is a complete Savior. He says that Jesus is the Lamb of God, but that this Lamb of God does something. He takes away the sin of the world. He has taken our sins by placing them on himself and blotting them out. How is it that Jesus takes away the sin of the world? What has to happen in order for that thing to happen? He has to take it. It has to be transferred from the one who has sinned to the sacrifice. Christ willingly and gladly placed the guilt of sin on himself. This is what he came to do. He came to preach the gospel, and he came to die for sinners. He willingly and gladly does this. It's what we refer to as the great transfer. All of the unrighteousness, all of the guilt of sin is transferred off of the sinner and onto Christ. And all of the unblemishedness, all of the righteousness of Christ is transferred to the sinner. The Christian then is declared to be righteous, though he is not. But in the sight of God, because of this transfer of sin, God, when he looks upon the one who offers the sacrifice, sees not that man's sin, not his guilt, but sees instead the merit of Christ Jesus. But a mere transfer of sin would not be enough. Something has to be done with it. And we know what has to be done with it. 
that sinful thing must die. So his death makes amends for the offense of sin by paying that which was owed. When Christ died, restitution was made. Atonement was made. What you owed, brother and sister, in the Lord Jesus Christ was paid for once and for all. Now, there's two groups of us in here right now. There's those of us who have had our sins paid for by the, by the blood of Christ. And yet there's another group of us who, while we have made many investigations, while we are being sent here by our parents every Sunday to inquire of these things, to ask and see what these things are about, do not feel our own need for this transfer to take place. You have your sins still on you. I say with John the Baptist, Behold Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, it's hard for us in English to see exactly what the original Greek means by this takes away. Because in our language, we really don't have anything, at least I'm not aware of it, that talks about a continuation of things, something that is continually happening. You see, Jesus doesn't just take away sins once, but he's taking away sins continually. It is sin in the, in the singular, and he is taking it away. Its effect, that sacrifice's effect, is taking uh, as a continuation. This means that sin's past, sin's present, and sin's future are all taken away. He takes away the sins of the world, of all types of people. He's not saying, John the Baptist is not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying that, that there is a universal atonement, that in the end all men will be saved, or that he has taken away the sins uh, in a collective way away from the world. But what he is saying, and what the Jewish audience would have uh, immediately understood is that Jesus is a sacrifice fitting not only for the Jew but for all types of people. Not just the Jew but the Roman who was their oppressor in their land. Not just the Jew but the Edomites. Not just the Jew but the Sumerians. Not just the, the Jews but the British. Not just the Jews the Spanish, not just the Jews, but the Americans. Not just the rich, not just the poor, not just the young, and not just the old. Black, white, it matters not. For he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so there is no 
there is no human category which this sacrifice does not break down the walls. If you are a yuppie who has lived in suburbia all your life, and you know nothing about lambs, and you know nothing about livestock, and you know nothing about, quite frankly, working with your hands. He is your sacrifice to take away your sin. Perhaps you're not from this country. Perhaps you're from a different part of the world. Doesn't matter. He is your sacrifice. Maybe you're like me, and you're some hayseed from the southeast. doesn't matter. He is your sacrifice for sin. Take him and accept him as such. So there's two applications which I want us to consider and then our time will be done. And the first is this. Will you behold Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away sin? Or will you be like the Pharisees who saw no need for God's Lamb? Will you continue to be self-righteous? Will you continue to be a moralist? Will you be banking on the fact that you are more or less a good person in your own mind? You have no need of Jesus as the Lamb of God because you feel you have obeyed good enough. Not so. Or will you be like the Levites who investigated the claims but were totally uninterested in the Lamb of God? Maybe your soul is sleepy. Maybe you just have an apathy. You, you just don't care. You don't see what the point is, what all the fuss is about. Or will you hear, you're made to hear about the Messiah. You're forced to be in this place. But you feel no need of your own for him. Or, or will you be like John the Baptist's disciples or who heard Jesus is the Lamb of God and left John to follow him? See, these are your choices. And to the Christian, remember that God's Lamb has died for you. He has risen and he is now in heaven appealing for, for you you know, you're daily reminded of just how sinful you really are. Maybe on the outside, some people would say, you know, that, that person's more or less a, a good person. And maybe, they're, maybe they would even say of you that you're a God-fearer. But you know that you are not sinless. You know your thoughts. Uh, Ray Comfort, Way of the Master, he has this thing that he tells people who fall into this camp. He says, if, if I was to put a microchip in the back of your brain that recorded all of your thoughts, would it be okay if we played them back in front of everybody? No, absolutely not. Please don't do that. that if you guys did that, it would probably be the last time I was invited to preach here again. Because even though we are saved by grace, even though we are redeemed, dear brother and sister, by the blood of this Lamb, daily we are reminded of just how much of Christ we're not like. Sin upon sin, 
daily reminders that we are not sinless and that we still have need for Christ as a Savior. Conviction of sin is a work of the Spirit. Condemnation of sin is the hallmark of Satan. Without doubt, God does not delight in sin. We know this. God doesn't delight in sin. But it is equally true that your sins, my sins, have been paid for by the blood of the Lamb. So I want to offer you some something practical, something that, is, that has helped me. A pastor, uh, in, when I was a young Christian, told me this, and it really stuck with me, and I think it's an appropriate thing for us to, to consider now. When your thoughts are over, overtaken by doubts, when your thoughts are overtaken by doubts, ask yourself one question. Which one of your many sins did Christ's blood not pay for? We know what the answer is. There is not one sin of ours that Christ's blood uh, did not pay for. All of our sins are paid for by the blood of Christ. So this condemnation which we hear in our minds that tell us that God will never accept us, we know to be true, God will never accept us, but God will accept us in Christ Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. Let us pray. Oh, our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would brand this truth on our heart. We ask, Lord God, that we would think more about the power that is in the blood of Christ than the sin that, that still remains in us. And we long, O oh God, for the day of our glorification where we will finally be redeemed completely, having no reference to sin whatsoever. But even then, even then, Lord God, we will still have great need of Jesus to fall at His feet, to worship Him. But until then, O oh Father, we pray, do the work of redemption in this place, both for those who claim Christ and those who have yet. For it is in the name of our Lamb, your Lamb, Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.